We're looking at uh, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And we're coming to the close, but we're going to look at verses 43 to 47 this morning. Acts 2, 43 to 47. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. So in these words, Luke is describing for us the ongoing life of these early Christians in the first weeks of the church in Jerusalem in the days that followed Pentecost. In other words, it wasn't that there was an emotional spasm that thousands of people had by the oratory of Peter and moved by some emotional orgasm to make a decision and become very religious for a day or two. But there was a permanent change that took place in most of them. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers and this passage describes now their relationship with one another. Firstly, their relationship with God. And there are two features that Luke comments about on the the change that took place in their relationship with God. Firstly, everyone was filled with awe. It was not that there was a group within the church and they were the serious-minded people and the rest were rather happy-go-lucky and uh, but there was this this very serious-minded group, and they were filled with the fear of God. They were filled with awe. No, if you were a true Christian, then you were filled with awe. You were conscious that you knew now, in a way that you'd never known before, the creator of the universe, the one who kept you, the author of all the blessings that were yours the one who had through Jesus Christ pardoned your sins and filled you with the Holy Spirit and brought these mind-blowing truths to bear on your life that explained to you where you came from and what was wrong and how it could be put right and what the future would be and what happened after death. You were no longer a lonely individual that was glad of a smile or a, a greeting from someone because you were so often by yourself. Now you were part of the household of faith and the family of God. You could look into the face of a smiling Heavenly Father and say, Abba, Father, to him. And you knew his promises, that he was a good shepherd and uh, he would make you lie down in green pastures and still waters and uh, you would never be in want. And his goodness and his mercy would follow you all the days of your life. And this came to you, not because you were a particularly smart or, or righteous person. You'd been quite a boy. You'd been a sinner. You knew your own heart. 
But now through Jesus Christ, through his life imparted to you and his death on the cross, uh, you were absolutely different. You had a a new assurance, a, a, a new peace. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good, that we might go at last to heaven, saved by his precious blood. Imagine the creator, he holds in the palm of his hands the whole of the Milky Way with its millions of galaxies. And it's like a speck that floats before him. And he is a personal God. He's a God you can know. He's a God who is a God of love and joy and, and peace. And he's made up his mind to, to have you. Have you as his own. That he wants you to live with him forever and he's going to keep you until that day and these Christians then these early Christians came into that knowledge and they were filled with awe at such a God as we are filled with awe at him today I see the stars I hear the mighty thunder thy power through all the world displayed then sings my soul my saviour God to thee how great thou art So here were men and women in awe and fear of God. And then there was something else we're told about their relationship with God. They were praising God, verse 47. And that would mean, certainly it would mean that they said to one another much more than they'd ever said before. Praise the Lord. Priests were converted and miracles were wrought. And prayers were answered. And congregations are offered places to meet you. You can come to our Our house, our barn, Um, in the cold winter, don't be outside meeting. People said that. Praise the Lord, they said. Prodigal sons were restored and broken marriages were healed. And the gospel was preached by the apostles, not in word only, but with power and the Holy Spirit and with much assurance. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, people said. They weren't superstitious. They didn't say, aren't we lucky? They could talk confidently of the good things that had happened to them without being afraid that immediately a cruel fate would take those things from them. A woman came to my house this week to do some business and I talked to her in the conversation about um, uh, some good thing that had happened to me. Ooh, she said, you've done it now. (laughs) You've had it now, it's all up now, You've, you've said that. In other words, she thought I was tempting fate by acknowledging this goodness that God had brought into my life. She displayed uh, blind unbelief. She lived a life of fear. You know how it, it grips people. And they want to tell you about something. You know? The lump was benign, they want to say. or The operation was a success. Uh, the baby was healthy. And then they look around and they say... Touch wood. As though that's the formula that will save them from a horrid, cold fate, whopping them for presuming that things are going to go on like this. What a dreadful state people live in. These early Christians were saved from such superstitions. They knew the God from whom all blessings flow. They lived in awe of him. It was a It was a doxological awe. It was an awe that was mixed with thanksgiving and praise. They knew the source 
of every good and wonderful thing that God gave them. Our Lord teaches us to pray and he says, Say, Our Father. Call God your Father. But remember, he's your Father in heaven. There's a familiarity, but there is also awe. One of uh, Martin Luther's helpers was a man named Theodorus. And he said on one occasion, I once overheard him in prayer. But oh, what life and spirit did he pray in. It was with so much reverence as if he was speaking to God, yet with so much confidence as if he was speaking to a friend. Well, do you know anything of that? The, the, the Christian knows these combinations, doesn't he? Of awe and fear. Because our God is a consuming fire. Our God is light. In him is no darkness at all. But our God is tender and loving. He's our father. He's tender and he's kind and patient. He's a God who forgives our sins. So there is, firstly then, their relationship with God described. And secondly, their relationship with the apostles. He tells us, next, verse 43, many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And then he goes on. It's the chapter division that wasn't in the original, but it's helpful, these chapter divisions. And in the beginning of the next chapter, then, we are given such an illustration of what they did. It happened. It happened in space and time. It happened on this planet. It happened where a degree of latitude crosses a degree of longitude chronologically. If there had been cameras, you could have videoed it then. My little grandson, he often says to me when I tell the children a story, did that really happen, Tide? It's a fair question, isn't it? It's an important question. Did this incident that I'm about to read to you, did it actually take place? And in his second letter, Peter, then he writes and he tells the Christians he's writing to that they didn't share with them cunningly devised fables. They didn't tell them fairy tales. They didn't make up and embellish the beautiful life and works of Jesus Christ. There was no need to do that. The books of the world, John says, couldn't contain all the wonderful works that the Lord Jesus did. He delivered many towns and villages in Galilee from every trace of disease. And Peter tells us he was an eyewitness of what happened. So this incident in the opening verse of chapter 3, it it occurred just as Luke describes it. The doctor describes it. And Luke tells us in our text, many, that's the word he uses, many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles in the morning, in the afternoon, in the bright light of day, in the evening, in the public place, in a private home. This work of the apostles is one of the proofs of the existence of God, that this world has seen the mighty works of God through men who were the plenipotentiaries of Jesus. And this particular incident in chapter 3 describes a well-known figure in, uh, in Jerusalem. I don't know if he was a tourist attraction. He'd be a 
a bit of a nuisance to people because he had a pitch uh, at the gate of the temple, beautiful, and he made sure his friends carried him there as the crowds would gather for the time of afternoon prayer. And he would cry to people for arms, for money. Here it is then, verse 1. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And Peter said, silver or gold, I don't have. But what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. So here's extraordinary miracle, and it took place. How do you explain it? I'm not talking about tele-evangelists and all the fake things that they do. But he was a man with spindly legs and weak ankles, and his muscles and his tendons were given a vibrancy and a strength. There was a multiplication and a growth there. He could jump, he could run and shout, Oh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, he shouted. And all the people hurried. They all came across. They forgot about the time of prayer and they came to see this extraordinary sight. They knew the man. They'd known him for years and years, part of the landscape of the city. And they'd heard him crying for money and sometimes they just hurried past and sometimes they felt kind. But now this transformation, he was jumping and running and they cried out, Hosanna! They cried, praise the Lord. They couldn't deny that a miracle had been done and something that God alone could do. And they were filled with wonder and amazement. Now there was an apostolic momentum which had been triggered off by the public ministry of Jesus Christ. He called them to him and enabled them and empowered them. He told them greater things than those he had done, they would do. And so it was. Uh, we're told in Acts 5 and verse 12, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And Luke goes on in verses 15 and 16 of that chapter to show how it impacted Jerusalem. People brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. All of them. No exceptions. Not the normal healings. People in the last stages of heart disease and cancer healed. There were signs that these men were divinely appointed by God, that they should be listened to and heard, that their, their letters should be read and obeyed. They were signs that an apostle had. Uh, the famous verse, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the things that mark 
an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. How were you inferior to the other churches except that I was never a burden to you? I was... I, oh, no, you didn't have to pass the collection plate around to support me. I, I made tents. But I did signs and wonders in your midst. The writer of the Hebrews, he says the same thing, doesn't he? He asks the great question, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at first began, was spoken by our Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness by signs and wonders and divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. Here we are. It's a confirmation. It was an apostolic enabling. A divine, miraculous energy, a gift that God gave these men who were the representatives and spokesmen and chroniclers who wrote the Gospels and wrote these letters. And they are the foundation of every church. You say, why don't we see those men in, in, and those gifts today? Well, because the time for those gifts to be exercised hasn't yet come. Time will come. It'll come when Christ returns. And he'll bring his apostles and his angels with him. And he will transform people who are on this world when he comes. The sick will be healed and the dying will be raised. And then will be the time for that. And not until then. Once the last apostle had died, then God didn't give the gift of apostleship to anyone else. The qualification of being an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ of having personally been called by him to be an apostle, that, that was no longer maintained. So there's no one in the world today who has the gift of performing miracles, that we can fly in from China or from Argentina, who can heal a person with Down syndrome or who's got Alzheimer's. Today we go to God. We go to God on their behalf. And they go to God. And they ask God, give me grace then to live today. To honor thee and please thee in my need and in my weakness. And bless those who watch over me and care for me and strengthen me day by day. And that's what we do today. God is there with us. The mighty power of God is there with us day by day. But oh, a day is going to come, my friends, when the little foretaste that you read of in Acts 3, well, we're going to see it in some glorious way. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we will be changed. The perishable must put on the imperishable and the mortal clothed with immortality. It'll come. It's going to come. And here's the foretaste that disease and sickness and death don't have the last word. Christ 
is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first. He's the last. So you say to me, then, is there nothing supernatural in this congregation? And I say, of course, there is, there is. We have the miraculous words of the apostles, and they are the center of our gatherings. They were given this gift from God so that they wrote in the Gospels and in the letters and in the book of Acts and in the book of Revelation exactly what God wanted them to write. To the jots and tittles, to the dotting of the I's and the crossing of the T's, they were prevented from writing anything but his word. So we meet in the presence of a, of a miracle. And when you hold that, this blessed book in your hands, then you are holding a miracle. Here's a book that knows us and knows you and can advise you and counsel you and guide you and keep you and save you and make you holy like Christ. This book can do it. And every Sunday we meet, we meet in the presence of such a miracle. And there's a movement in the, in the uh, New Testament from the early miracles of our Lord and of the Acts, and it moves on, and it becomes a movement from apostles to preachers. And it becomes a movement from centering on these great men to Timothy and Titus and the work that they have to do and the preaching of the word of God and the local church and the elders and the deacons that are there. There's a movement to that. And the foundation of them all is the apostles. And so there's this relationship to the apostles. We continue in the apostles' teaching. And thirdly, there's the people's relationship with one another. And there's a great emphasis on this, this dynamic in our text. And it's reflected in a number of comments that Luke makes. Firstly, he says simply, they were together. All the believers were together, verse 44. Every day they continued to meet together, verse 46. There were no rumblings of discontent. There were no personal fan clubs of people who thought, Oh, John, oh, he's the greatest. He's so loving. Peter, oh, Peter is the greatest. He's so strong. He's like a rock. Oh, Andrew is so accessible. Oh, I love him. Um, Thomas is so human. You, you have to go and listen to Thomas. And fan clubs. There was nothing like that. They were together. No personality cults divided them. No emphases on certain doctrines. What about the last day and the first day of the week, the Sabbath day and, and the Lord's day, and arguments about that. No disagreements about foods, what to eat and what not to eat. They were together. We say they were all singing from the same hymn sheet. They were together. And they set up before us. The unity of the church is put before us as a, an example for the church at all times. Now we know in heaven we're going to be one, aren't we? Oh, what a blessing. No more disagreements, no more unhappiness with other Christians in heaven. Nothing, not a hint of it there. We'll all be doing the will of God. But here in this world, this groaning world with remaining sin 
we are all charged with keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. That's our duty. Paul writes to the Ephesians, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called with one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in you all. They knew this. They were bound together. We're together now. My brother, my sister, to the older women, mothers, to the women younger than you are, sisters. And they reflected the unity that God had placed in their hearts. It was quite extraordinary. Were they all middle class Jerusalem people who spoke the same language? No, they weren't. Not on the day of Pentecost. They were Parthians, Medes and Elamites, dwellers in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya around Cyprus, Visitors from Rome, Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. And yet here they are, united nations in Christ. Here in Jerusalem, uh, 2,000 years ago then, here are people from 15 named nations and they're together. It doesn't come without an effort Paul doesn't remind them merely that you are positionally all one in Christ Jesus. That's true. He's not satisfied with telling them that. He exhorts them to maintain it. Well, now, how does that come? Well, it's not through touchy-feelingness. It comes by an effort. Make every effort. Because it's so easy to bring division into a congregation... Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen to you and don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and anger and rage, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Togetherness. Oh, at, at effort. At mortifying those seeds of sin. At looking to Jesus for help and strength from him day by day. And then there's another remarkable feature about the togetherness that they had everything in common. Verse 44. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. 
Now, if every Christian was called to live a life of voluntary poverty, then there would be very clear commands about this in the New Testament. It would be worked out in some detail. There would be a letter from Paul explaining how it would be done. There would be a chapter in the letter to the Corinthians, for example. It wouldn't simply be two verses in Acts that described the initial tender regard that Christians had for one another. What do we see here? Well, we see that the decision to share property and possessions was voluntary. In other words, they chose to do it when it was laid on them, when they were led. You see in verse 46, there's a reference there to their homes. In other words, they were still living in their houses. They hadn't sold everything except the clothes that they were wearing. And from the tense of the verb selling and the tense of the verb giving, we can see that selling land and property was occasional. Selling it and giving it to people, that was occasional. A need came. There was an announcement made in the prayer meeting. They said, do you know, um, Rebecca has been thrown out of her house by her husband since she's become a Christian. She's had such a terrible time. She has nowhere to stay. There was a need and somebody said, I'll, I'll look after it. And he did. So that there was no one in need. Uh, Peter speaks to Ananias uh, about his selling of the land. And he says to him, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Acts 5.4. In other words, uh, your possession is yours. Your laptop. Your car. Your home. The money in your bank account. It doesn't belong to the church here. It's yours. It belongs to Christ. Take my silver and my gold all. Not a mite would I withhold it. It all belongs to him. But it's yours to determine how you're going to use it. What you're going to do with your money. How you're going to respond to needs. The great lesson that we are learning from this observation is the generosity of the early church. The great lesson is uh, making the needs of others known to us and responding ourselves to those needs. The great principle in the Acts of the Apostles, they gave to anyone as he had need. It's repeated again in chapter 4. There was no needy persons among them. The money was distributed to anyone who had need. Acts 4 and 34 and 35. You know, John writes his letter, you know his letter. And he says, uh, how can any one of you who has health and strength and, and money in the bank and possessions, and you hear of a local Christian in need, and you refuse to share with them what you have, how can you claim that the love of God is in your heart. So Christian togetherness is Christian caring. Christian togetherness 
is Christian sharing. The poor person knows no shame. The rich person knows no meanness. So this description of the early church is a constant challenge for us. And then the other feature about this togetherness is that they met in their homes. They broke bread, verse 46, in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. Now your home is precious to you, isn't it? You know you can go back to it. You go off for a semester to university, you know in three months' time they're going to let you in. No child says when he goes off to school, um, is put on the school bus, um, can I come home? He doesn't ask that because this is his home as much as it is his father's home and his mother's home. Luke tells us that Christians were welcomed now into their homes because there was a new family. There was the household of God. There was relationships with one another. You know, there are some of you uh, are afraid of inviting people to your homes because you feel you can't cook. And uh, will your meals be criticized? Will people complain as they drive away about the pudding or sniff that the meat was too tough or grumble that the plates didn't match or that the children didn't behave themselves? And they dwell on things like that. Shame, shame on you, shame on you. For thinking like that. How does Luke describe them? They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They didn't behave rudely like these people I've described to you. They were so glad to be there. And the family that had them in their homes was so glad that they'd invited them. There was an ease and a naturalness and a sincerity. It was a time of glad and sincere hearts. Well, you've come. It fits in. I've got a... A fabulous um, three-dimensional illustration of this. After the morning service, there'll be fellowship lunch. And the tables will be loaded and you can come and help yourselves and eat as much as you want. And eat all you take. And do it with glad and sincere hearts. And then lastly, the people's relationship with the citizens of Jerusalem is mentioned. In verse 47, they enjoyed the favor of all the people. So, this extraordinary statement. You wouldn't expect that, that there'd be resentment. And these people had had confessed the crucified blasphemer, that they confessed him to be the Messiah and their Lord, and there would be resentment. Well, initially, there might have been, but soon it dispersed as they discovered they had new neighbors. Oh, it was the same people. But they had a new thoughtfulness. They were the ones on the street who looked looked after the plants when you went away on a trip to see your parents in Dan or Beersheba. They fed the pets. They looked after the children when you were delayed in returning home and the children didn't know what to do. They practiced a sort of primitive neighborhood watch. They were so generous that if their neighbors uh, suddenly had guests that came without warning and they had no bread, they could just knock on the door and they would be given bread and, and milk. They were the same people, but oh, they were kinder. 
They were more thoughtful. They were more helpful, more considerate. People spoke well of them. They enjoyed the favor of Jerusalem. You remember Luke's description of Jesus in the second chapter of his gospel. How he says he grew in favor with men. How people liked Jesus. They liked him to come to their home and fix the rafters and put in the new door or the frame for the window and how he talked to them and ran errands for them and helped them and carried water from the well for their homes. And they were very impressed with him and blessed Mary that she had such a, a wonderful son. It's something very important, getting on with people. It's something we're not all so good at. Some religious people conspicuously lack this ability in getting on with others. And yet our Lord had a graciousness about him. He was spoken of well as a boy and as a teenager and as a a young man. There was an affability. There was a social ease. There was a social graciousness about him. John the Baptist was very different. He was austere to an eminent degree. He lived in the wilderness and would only eat wild food that he could pick out there, honey and locusts, stern and forbidding. He's not the model for religious men. Jesus is the model there. And let's make sure that if you have an unsociable spirit, but that you say, well, it's my religion. Well, your religion shouldn't make you unsociable. Your neighbors should thank God for you. And you should be then open to help them in, in, in any way. I know an hour came when uh, the Sanhedrin turned the screws and commissioned Saul of Tarsus to kill. And an inquisition was set up. And the people then began to realize that they were being warned that if they didn't trust in Jesus Christ, there'd be no hope for them. And their Jewishness couldn't save them, and they were angry. And so a new spirit came in. But initially, the impact that they made was of the holiness and the kindness and the love and the righteousness and the patience of their lives. Remember how Peter says, if you're going to be persecuted, make sure that it's because you were straight. Not because you were irritable and you cheated and lied. Not because you were selfish and a self-appointed judge and crude and unthinking. Make sure if you're going to be persecuted, it is for righteousness. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Don't compromise your holiness for the sake of winning the smiles of the people in the office, the men and women in the staff room. That's what he says. It's important to instill in our children then social skills, isn't it? That they can freely mix with other children. That they can cooperate and lead and let others go first and not always want to dominate and have the first or the best of everything. But they're concerned for them. We were saying goodbye to our grandchildren in Cardiff. 
And uh, our only granddaughter had uh, said goodbye to her nine. And she left the house and the waves and the farewells. She got in the car and then she suddenly got out of the car. And she hurried back to her grandmother and she said, God's blessing be upon you. And then she turned and went back into the car and went off to school. It's very touching. What potential for a future life of ministry was in that gesture and in those words, that thoughtfulness. Oh, I have not wished my grandmother God's blessing to be on her. They grew in favor with other people. Such a blessing. Lord, bless your word to us now and make us like these early Christians in our relationships with thee and the apostolic word and with one another as Christians and with the people who live around us. Oh, make us salt and light and fill us with loving patience and kindness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.